A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Today we are going to discuss ischemic heart disease and we have our resident medical expert in with us today, our guest, Dinesh. First of many. First of many, hopefully. Dinesh, how are you? Hey guys, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming in. So Dinesh is going to help us with all the clinical stuff. Uh, We'll be discussing what ischemic heart disease is. and how it presents, and then what we could potentially do clinically to treat ischemic heart disease. Matt, where do we where do we want to start? Do you want to define what ischemic heart disease is? All right, so ischemia in itself, I guess, would be defined as a reduction in blood flow into a tissue or location. Now, this is different to, say, hypoxemia, which could be more systemically based, whereas ischemia is a reduction in, in an area. Now, I guess... Speaking in reference to the heart, this is a reduction in blood flow to just the heart, probably most specifically the heart muscle itself, because that is the area that's probably working the hardest, and that's the the area that's going to run out of oxygen first. So when you reduce blood flow, you're obviously reducing oxygen delivery, but also nutrient delivery as well. Yeah. And so there is another distinguishing factor there between hypoxia and ischemia, is that hypoxia is more so relating to the lack of oxygen, when the ischemia is lack of oxygen, but also the nutrients that go along with that blood flow. Mm. And probably the draining away of the metabolic toxins and so forth, so they're probably going to start building up in the heart as well, because you're not um, getting that flow to take it away. Um, In terms of stats, in uh, Dinesh, what are we looking at in terms of ischemic heart? How many people in Australia... Uh, yeah. Any stats there? It's actually one of the leading causes of death around the world. So okay. it, the consequences of having an ischemic heart um, eventually causes death in a lot of people. And that's one of the biggest problems that we face at the moment. In terms of people presenting to the emergency departments in the Gold Coast with heart attacks, um, it's about 70,000 a year. Um, Just in the Gold Coast? No, oh. in Australia. <laughs> okay. With confirmed cases of ACS, and that's a number that the... Um, and ACS is acute coronary syndrome. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So that's one of the numbers that's been uh, thrown around. Um, it's around 70,000. Wow, okay. And how many of those... So I know that the mortality rate is variable, but within... I think within the first year or first five years, would you say the mortality rate post-MI is quite high? Yeah, it can be, and that depends on 
a lot of things. So um, it depends on a person's age, for example, what existing diseases they have, mm-hmm. what existing cardiovascular diseases they yeah. have, um, time to treatment, and the way it's managed. So that's dependent on a lot of things. Okay. But, I mean, if you're someone who has a history of heart attacks, who's had stents, um, who might be of advanced age with a lot of other problems going on, the prognosis can be quite grim. Worse and worse. Right. Yeah. So a couple of take-home points. Well, so firstly, in the Western world, um, or the developed world, it's the number one killer of mortality. So that's ischemic heart. Um, sometimes they will use the term coronary artery disease as well, and that generally refers to a spectrum of, uh, you know, angina being stable, moving to unstable, and then you go into forms of myocardial infarction. Is that safe by saying that in terms of the terms? Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of ACS, which is an acronym you use, um, that's acute coronary syndrome, which generally means unstable angina uh, and then the STEMI or non-STEMI. Exactly. That's right. All right. And then just finally, just to touch up on the ischemia versus hypoxemia, Mm. ischemia is generally caused by... um, a blockage in the pipes yeah. in the heart. So the coronary vessels that supply the heart, um, they're going to get generally, in most cases, blocked by um, clogs of fatty, fibrous tissue. Is that fair? Yeah, these fibrous fatty atherosclerotic plaques. And in fact, when you get a heart attack or uh, ACS, it's yeah. generally when that plaque ruptures right. and throws off a clot. Okay. So if we have, so if we look at these plaques that are building up. Um, you can have stable and unstable plaques, and stable plaques will be sitting there within the intima of the blood vessel, and it will obviously occlude the blood vessel to a varying degree. If, as far as I'm aware, if it occludes the blood vessel to about, and it's stable, which means it hasn't hasn't it's not thrombogenic, hasn't created a thrombus and, and thrown itself away. If it's there and it occludes the vessel around about 70%, then you will get some sort of ischemic event during exercise because obviously you increase the need for oxygen around the body, increase the activity of the heart. Heart requires more oxygen as well. And then also the blood vessel has less of a capacity to be able to dilate, which is very important. Um, But if it's occluded around about 90%, then you can get ischemic events at rest. And so this occlusion just means a blockage. And we need to just remember the fact, and we've said it before, that you've got a blood vessel, it's a pipe, and you know it makes sense to think that if you were to block half of that pipe, you would stop half the blood flow going through, but that's not the case. It's to the power of four. So if you'd halve the, vol- the area of that pipe, or occluded by half, you're changing the amount of blood flow. One sixteenth of the amount of blood will be getting through, as opposed mm. to one half. And so, quite a lot. So you could occlude the vessel by not a great deal, but you drastically alter the amount of blood that can get through. An unstable plaque. Can I stop you for one second? Yeah, go for it. Just before we go completely into ischemic, mm. we did speak about hypoxemia. So this is, I guess, what we're talking is today. We're looking at why there's a, a mismatch between oxygen. Um, Supply, so oxygen getting to the heart versus how much the heart actually needs. So mm. it's that demand versus supply, right? Would we, is that fair by saying, guys? I would say so. Okay, so it's kind of like that balance beam between how much oxygen has been delivered to the heart versus how hard the heart's working. Yeah. Now, we said that we have the ischemia, which is g- generally by the blockage in the pipes, but you also said that there is a hypoxemia, which we're not going to focus on, but we'll just point out what kind of conditions may lead to hypoxemia and still the end result having a, an infarction mm-hmm. or a heart attack. Some of these conditions could be what anemia, severe anemia. Yeah. If it's severe enough, yeah. yeah. And uh, that kind of condition is called type 2 myocardial injury. Okay. So you can get it in people in extreme cases of anemia, yeah. Yeah. And even when the body's under extreme amounts of stress, so if they are septic, right. mm. um, sometimes if they have an exacerbation of COPD, for Okay, example. so lung issues? Lung issues, yep. And, um, what about like carbon monoxide poisoning? Would they get it for that? Would that be uh, the reason why they may die if they've just got no oxygen in their blood because it's got carbon monoxide 
on the hemoglobin? It could be one of the consequences okay. for it, but with carbon monoxide poisoning, you could also get brain injury. Oh, okay. So uh, kind of a stroke. Yeah. Okay. So that you can get a whole host of problems that occur. Okay. Um, another one is cocaine use. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. So what is it doing there? Just with cocaine toxicity, um, it affects the coronary vessels, so it can cause vasospasm. Oh, like which, which can then cause. Um, myocardial injury yeah right so with people coming in with so we live on the Gold Coast and you're at Gold Coast University Hospital that's right does that mean that this is something that you've seen (laughs) quite often (laughs) I mean the you know there there is a population that obviously uses cocaine yeah and um, when they come in with chest pain it's definitely one of the things that you want to have on the top of your mind yeah because it could be one of the more drastic consequences. And do they need the- to overdose on it? I mean, not overdose on it, but do they need to take an exorbitant amount of it in order to get these sensations? Or is this just a... As far as you're aware, obviously as a non-cocaine yeah. user, <laughs> hopefully, uh, <laughs> that um, yeah. you know, you just, just recreational use yeah. can lead to this type of chest pain. Well, this is one of the problems with any recreational drugs. Um, it's not manufactured in a controlled way. Yeah. You don't really know the pharmacodynamics of what you're getting. Right. So you can't really... Uh, I mean, if you have a whole heap, it would probably affect you a lot more. Mm. Um, so overdose is a problem. But you can't really predict the pharmacodynamics and its effects on your physiology. Sure. So it could be as little or as lot could cause any of these complications. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And one last one, just out of interest. What about shunting? Have you ever seen a, a heart that has a congenital defect um, and for some reason it um, allows the blood to go in the opposite direction? Have you ever seen that that may cause a myocardial injury? Yeah. In kids, that's a big problem. Okay. Um, if, if it happens. Yeah. And that's going to... I mean, there are different types of uh, anatomical... Yeah, abnormalities. Abnormalities yeah. that can cause that. Um, but they'll have systemic okay. issues with that. So it's not just that. And there are certain types of congenital defects that are not even survivable. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Okay. But um, the pediatric cardiothoracics guys do some amazing yeah. types of surgeries yeah. to correct a lot of these things. Even in, in utero now, right? So yeah. Is, which is phenomenal. Have you seen or heard of paradoxical emboli in which it originates in the venous system and then when it gets to into the right side of the heart it can go through a patent foramen ovale for example and then shunt itself across to the left system and then cause a blockage there is that i mean i'm sure that's rare but i know that it can happen yeah so one of the biggest risks with that is having a stroke Uh, Um, because you throw that into the left and it could go up into your intracranial circulation yeah. and cause a stroke. Because you'd imagine so, it'd be pretty tough to get a clot from the ventricle in the coronary system, right? Even though it's the first branch, but it has to almost fill in diastole. Mm. So you'd yeah. think the clot just gets thrown straight into the aorta and then up to the, the yeah. brain or it's elsewhere. Yeah. I think this leads us to an important point that, um, and I'm sure you can verify this for us, Dinesh, that the majority of the time, the left side of the heart is going to be affected for ischemic heart disease. I mean, you can have... I, yeah, it's a good right? point. And so... So the left side of the heart, left ventricle. Left ventricle, yeah. right? And so, as far as I'm aware, for a number of reasons. One reason being that left ventricle is thicker. You know, it's about 1.5 centimetres compared to half a centimetre for the right ventricle. And so, the thicker the muscle, the harder it contracts, the more oxygen itself requires. Which means that if you've got an issue with lack of oxygen delivery the left ventricle is going to be affected first. The other reason being that when the left ventricle contracts, so under systole, that contraction, it'll go from zero millimetres of mercury to about 125 millimetres of mercury. And this contractile force actually strangulates the capillary system of that left ventricle and closes it up, which means that the capillary system of the left ventricle or the left myocardium only feel and deliver its nutrients during diastole, during relaxation. The right ventricle can deliver its oxygen and nutrients in both systole and diastole because the contractile force goes from zero to about 25 and isn't sufficient enough to strangulate the capillaries of the of the system. So mm. that left ventricle, as far as I'm aware, and again, please, please tell me that I'm correct. <laughs> I just haven't been... 
uh, making things up for the past five minutes, um, is mainly affected. And maybe the right side could be affected if you get right side hypertrophy, maybe a uh, core pulmonale or something yeah, like yeah. that, leading to right hypertrophy. Yeah, you can get ischemic events that affect both sides of the house, and I'm not sure about the numbers yeah. of each, but I suppose the thing to remember there is that um, a significant left-sided insult will probably likely be quite catastrophic Yeah. yeah okay. um, from that perspective. Yeah. yeah. And that's because the left side of the heart when it contracts, will deliver the oxygenated blood to the whole body. And so if there's failure there, there's failure for systemic oxygen delivery. That's right. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So with that said, I think we can now go and focus specifically on the ischemic heart um, spectrum. Clinical presentations. Yeah. So we've got, just to reiterate, we've got the four main types. We've got stable angina. We've got unstable angina. We've got NSTEMI which means a, non, a non-ST a non elevation myocardial infarction. When we say infarction, that actually means now complete cessation of blood to the, to the area, rather than ischemia, which is just a reduction. And the infarct is referring to death. Right. Yeah. And then we have the STEMI, which is an ST elevation myocardial infarction. Now, so that's the kind of like the... Um, the what's, what word am I looking for? Spectrum. The spectrum, right. Now, in terms of the size of the pipe, so this is what you were alluding to, do you want to just um, flesh that out for a second? So out of the four types, what kind of things are happening in the coronary vessel? In regards to just what it's doing to allow the blood through. So the stable one you said generally means there is a narrowing, mm-hmm. potentially up to a 70% amount, yeah. but it's the plaque itself the occlusion itself is fairly stable. Yes. And so that, that would produce a predictable kind of pain. As far as I'm Be- aware, yeah. Because so. like you, you put more demand on the heart, mm-hmm. it needs more oxygen, like you exercise or you're emotionally stressed or physically stressed or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it needs more blood, but you're only getting 70% or 70% is occluded. Yeah. So it now is bringing on a predictable pain. Yeah. Is that fair to say, Dinesh? Yeah, that's right. right. That's exactly right. And yeah. so then when you move to an unstable, mm-hmm. the plaque is now doing things that is behaving, you know... Not- so, yeah, so if you look at the plaque, the plaque's going to be predominantly this fatty deposit um, sitting within the intermarine. There's a couple of different inflammatory and chemical cascades that are going on. Um, you've got foam cells, you've got macrophages, you've got this little cap that sits over the top of it, and a couple of things can happen in which you can have the fat that sits within this plaque rupture out and again this is a thrombogenic situation which means it promotes a thrombus formation so platelets coming in and we know that platelets when one platelet comes in it stimulates more platelets that come in and stimulates the stickiness of platelets and this forms a thrombus Um, it can also just uh, uh, increase uh, platelet aggregation on the cap itself Uh, and again thrombus formation and this thrombus can come off lift off and then when you look at arteries, arteries go from bigger arteries to smaller arterioles to even smaller capillaries, and then at some point it will occlude a vessel. And this occlusion can be a full occlusion and fully limit the amount of oxygen that's getting past the nutrients getting past to feed the tissue uh, distal from that occlusion. And so then you're going to, so that's the unstable plaque. Okay. or a dynamic plaque or acute changes to a plaque. And so how would the pain, so Dinesh, how would the pain be different between an unstable and a stable angina? So if you're so, seeing a patient, what's a classical unstable? Yeah, exactly. So with the stable angina, it's going to be activity dependent. Okay. Yep. So, you know, you, you'll get someone who experiences pain when they're anywhere from walking to running, okay. from mild activity to strenuous activity. But unstable angina is when you actually get pain at rest. Right. Yeah. And that's obviously a more concerning picture. So if we look at... Now, obviously, we can only talk generalities and we can only talk statistics mm-hmm. because everyone's different. Um, patient history. Mm. Would you say that the majority of individuals um, that come in have a history of smoking, for example, have a mm. family history yeah. of heart disease... So the classic risk factors for ischemic heart disease or ACS, smoking is huge. Okay. Um, and smoking is a risk factor for any... Everything. <laughs> Everything ever. Everything. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> so um, from obviously things like lung cancer to mm. whatever else, but it 
has significant changes on your vascular system. Yeah. And obviously a heart or ischemic heart disease is uh, something that is a result of vascular disease. Mm. So smoking is a huge risk factor. Um, and, you know, even a couple of years of smoking can cause changes. Yeah. And um, I've read some studies that suggest that, you know, it causes instantaneous you know, acute changes in your uh, vasculature. Wow. But smoking is a huge risk factor. Yeah. There are a few other things as well. Um, family history is okay. a companion risk factor, particularly if one of your first degree relatives have had a cardiac event young. Yeah. Okay. Um, and how do you classify young? Is there an age where you can't... Under 50, under 55? Um, look, I can't remember the number sure. specifically, but, um, you know, if, if in their 40s or even early 50s they've had a cardiac event you'd probably be more cautious yeah Mm. okay because I'd assume that because it's so prevalent Mm. you're going to get what one in three people over the age of 60 have some sort of cardiac event right or some sort of cardiovascular disease of some sort it's pretty common yeah um so, so you've got smoking, history of heart disease what about um BMI blood pressure yes so yep hypertension is another one uh High cholesterol okay. is another one. And what, so, so cholesterol-wise, what are you guys looking at? Is mm-hmm. there particularly one that you're that seems more sinister? Yeah. So um, HDL, so different types of cholesterol. HDL is known to be protective. Mm. So high levels of HDL um, are a protective factor. But LDL is thorn, thorn to be a culprit. Mm. Triglycerides um, and VLDL as well. Okay. Yeah. So, high levels of those types of cholesterol are risk factor okay. for atherosclerotic disease. So, in the emergency, yeah. and, you, and we'll talk about this in a sec, but yeah. just to um, talk about it quickly now. Yeah. Individual comes in and you take bloods and you have yeah. a look at various things. Do you look at, um, obviously, apart from the markers to see yeah. whether there's an MI or whatever, do you look at cholesterol levels? Do you look at LDLs or anything? Or you no. just look at what's happening right now? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, in the emergency department, we don't run tests like lipid profiles. Mm. Um, We look at acute problems, and in the long term, either the GP, the cardiologist, or um, their long-term care providers will run those tests. But often, when we get a person in, they'll know that they have a history of high cholesterol. They might be on a statin mm-hmm. to lower their cholesterol levels. So there might be an established history already. Yeah. Okay. Just with that, I just yeah. read an interesting study and they looked at HDL, but what they did with it, were they? this was in a, a mouse study yeah. and they actually induced a, a myocardial infarction in the, in the mouse. So they somehow put a constriction somehow or constricting a device around the coronaries they could induce it um, mi but then they quickly in- injected hdl into the rats um, blood system and then they r- took the constriction off and they found that the rats that were given that bolus of hdl they not only um their cardiac output was 10 percent better straight after the mi but also they recovered much better um, post mi so their heart didn't scar as much and the thought behind it is HDL actually binds to some of the uh, myocyte cells and enhance the way that glucose is uptaken into the cell to make ATP without oxygen. So more energy efficient. Yeah, more energy efficient. Huh. And so that's, that's thought to be something there as well. So that sort of feeds into, what, like you said, cardioprotective. So mm. not, not just mm. impartial and negligible or, or, you know, has no effect. Um, it actually may be cardioprotective in from that stance. So does that mean that LDLs, in that sense, um, actively... Uh, so as far as I'm aware, HDLs deposit the cholesterol. By the way. Oh, sorry. HDLs take the cholesterol, send it to the liver for processing. LDLs Drop deposit the cholesterol. And that may be an oversimplistic yeah. picture. But um, is that as far as you're aware? Hmm. Yeah, and there are a few validated tools that you use for the risk of cardiovascular disease. So different things like the Framingham score, which um, you guys might be aware of. But it's a study that came out of the UK, and it was this huge 
study over a long period of time that included a lot of people. Mm. And I think it was really one of the first studies that established the risk factors for heart disease. And in clinical practice, it's really useful to use some of these objective tools or calculators to calculate risk for people. Mm. And what one of the things that um, a lot of these measurements use are LDL and HDL levels okay. specifically. Yeah. yeah. One other quick question, because Mike and I were given this question um, on the radio the other night, and it's t- in terms of um, females and when they're having a potential heart attack, how, do they present just like males or is there variability? Yeah. And so that's the first question too. The second one is um, if a female was to come into you with chest pain and yeah. she was under, say, 40, would you be not thinking heart attack because it's just that unlikeliness that she will have? Yeah. Okay, so this is an um, interesting topic. So when you look at the clinical presentation for a heart attack, right, Classically, you look at a type of chest pain, mm-hmm. and it's more actually discomfort. Mm. So people say they feel a squeezing sensation, mm. a pressure-like sensation, an elephant might be sitting on their chest. Yeah. Yeah. So not pain For, per se, but exactly. discomfort. Yeah. Um, they might feel a fullness in their chest, and it could be mild to severe. They'll also potentially have radiation to the shoulders so that pain might be felt in the shoulders one or both of the arms fingers and your lower lower jaw not the upper jaw and usually not below the belly button so sometimes it also radiates to the back as well Mm -hmm. now in so that that's what you look for in a classic scenario yeah so there are some special groups like women people with diabetes and the elderly that might present differently mm-hmm. so that really complicates things a bit more yeah. so sometimes people just present with shortness of breath or they might faint mm. or they might feel palpitations they might feel nauseous sweaty sweaty um so vomiting sometimes yep and that's um, that's like an inferior infarct right it's, you can't really localise okay. an infarct based on symptoms alone. Okay. Because okay. I always thought that from the, the, the base of the heart or behind the heart, because the vagus nerve is going through that kind of area, mm. by infarcting that, sometimes it irritates the vagus, which brings on GIT symptoms and even maybe cause other, you know, bradycardia with it. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. But a lot of the arrhythmias that happen are from myocardial injury okay. and thus a disruption of yeah, the... Sure conducting system um, but also they, they might get epigastric discomfort mm-hmm. so that's just the upper part of your stomach mm. so yes women can present differently with it and they're, they're a special group that are generally documented to be cautious about okay. as well and if you talk about women under 40 mm-hmm. as you were saying so it certainly could be one of the differentials and there are, there are you know guys and girls in their 30s that come in as well but they have a whole heap of risk factors generally Mm. Um, but you could think about heart attack but there are also a bunch of different other conditions that you need to think about some of them being pulmonary embolism yeah Yeah, so a blood clot in your lung Um, it could be a gastric ulcer Mm. it could be pneumonia sometimes so there are rarely people presenting with just chest pain. So is this where you start looking at the other symptoms like the shortness of breath and so forth? And Exactly. Okay. And it, it depends on taking a good history and yeah. examination and it really helps you narrow down um, where to look. Yeah. And that's I think that's one of the keys in medical practice is really, really taking a bit of time to take a good history from someone mm. and examining them because you can't really test for everything. Yes. Um, Especially if, you know, it's this acute coronary syndrome, it's it's all in the short term. You gotta yeah. you make and if there's an ischemic event you don't want it lasting for too long. Exactly. And well, I guess one of the key bits um, in the emergency department is also to risk stratify people to make sure they're having nothing life-threatening yeah. going on. So is that, mm. now is that, do you guys do that or is this a triage 
job or you, is there a number of levels of triage yeah. in which <laughs> this is performed? Yeah, yeah. So does all chest pain go straight straight through, and then you guys go, okay, this you yeah. can point to where the chest pain is, so I'm not too concerned, and so forth. Exactly. So we have uh, skilled nurses that do triage. So they, you know, the patient comes in, they have a chat to the nurses, and the nurses assign a category anywhere from one to five. Yeah. One being this person's on the brink of death. Yeah. I need to see them right now. To five, where, you know, I need my toenail clipped. Or yeah, so, and this is a good point. Sorry to interrupt, but this is a good point because you hear so many people, um, anecdotally, that will go to emergency and they said, oh, I've been sitting, I was sat there for 20 hours and people just went in front of me and that peed me off. And so they had something like they might have needed stitches or something. Yeah. But a lot of the time, they don't see people going through with the Category 1s, like either from the ambulance yes. or they've gone straight through. And that a lot of people don't realise this is the way it's done. Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunately the nature of the emergency department. So you'll have a lot of critically ill patients. Um, you'll have stable patients that deteriorate mm. and require a lot more time. Or you'll have a patient that was seemingly well and you discover something catastrophic in yeah. them. So it's very, very difficult to predict the time course and waiting times. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges we face. And, you know, we are always looking at ways to improve that, I think. But um, that does mean long waiting times sometimes. Well, it's difficult because anywhere else in the world, you know, any other scenario, it's usually first in, first served. But unfortunately, when it comes yeah. to health, that's not necessarily the way it's going to be classified. Um, All right, so... So, just let me just jump in for okay. a sec. When it comes to... So, you were talking about the way that an MI, which is myocardial infarction, may manifest. Yeah. And you were saying, obviously, um, sort of like a squeezing, a dull, aching sort of a discomfort, yeah. elephant sitting on the chest. Um, and you said it may be experienced in the left arm or neck or jaw or back. It could be the right arm as well, actually. Right arm as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, is it... Is it would you say it's more common to see people having these types of um, symptoms or experience in the left arm and neck and jaw? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the classic... Textbook. Way of, yeah, the textbook <laughs> way of thinking. Yeah. But actually it can uh, present in a bunch of different ways. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and sometimes people can present with a cardiac arrest okay. after that as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, I mean, if you get those textbook symptoms and you're obviously more inclined to mm. go the whole hog yeah. quickly. That's fine. Okay. So, let's quickly discount, just in terms of presentation, stable yeah. angina. Yeah. So, let's say that the person isn't presenting with a typical pain of on an exertion. Yeah. They've just come in with a kind of dull, aching, squeezing pain behind their sternum. Mm-hmm. Um at this point in time, am I safe by saying that you really don't know if it's going to be unstable, NSTEMI, or, or STEMI at this point, just by the presentation? It's too hard to predict that? Yeah, so just at the first point yeah. of call? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you won't even know if it's if it's an ACS. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so the first thing you potentially would do to try and find out is... Yeah, what? and ECG. ECG. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the history is really important because, you know, if this person says... I've had stents in the past. Mm. I've had a prior heart attack. Okay. Um, I'm a. I've been smoking for 200 years. Or all right. Let's assume yeah, that. Yeah, let, no, let's assume I'll there's be been no yep. um, interventions or yep. or anything yep. like that. This is yep. their first presentation, yep. but they have smoked. Blah blah blah. Um, but you don't know yep. which one we're t- talking about. Mm. So you put them on an ECG. Yeah. How would it be different between the three? Between the unstable and STEMI and STEMI? What would be like? Yep. The discriminating so, factor. A STEMI yeah. or SD elevation myocardial infarction yeah. by definition will have elevations in the SD segments. Okay, and of the ECG. How like how much is it have to be a certain um, size of depression, or does it have to be over more than one trace? Yeah, so it's two or more contiguous leads. Okay. Over one millimeter. One millimeter. Okay. Or if it's V two and three, it's more than two millimeters. Okay. And so this is working off a twelve lead ECG. That's right. Um, so there's many parts of the heart it's looking at. Yeah. And it has to go above the baseline by at least one millimeter. Is that yeah. right? Okay. Unless it's V two and three. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so does that ST elevation? Obviously, apart from it 
telling you that there's an ST elevated myocardial infarction potentially then is it telling you about what tissue is what part of the heart is being affected obviously you've got 12 sets of eyes on the heart with yep. these 12 leads and you were saying you know if if we see something in a particular lead that has to be you know above this or mm. whatever it may be does that tell you where the, it's being affected on the heart exactly so the different leads will suggest different parts of the heart um, so if it's 2, 3 and AVF, for example, then it's an inferior infarct. Mm -hmm. And all the different areas of the ECG show you what different parts of the heart are. So you can get a very good idea. And that's important because if you are seeing an inferior infarct or a right-sided um, infarct, then you avoid giving them nitroglycerin, for example, GTN. Okay. So why would, you, why would you do that? So, avoid? yeah, that's, that's because... A right-sided right insult is preload-dependent, mm -hmm. and if you end up dropping that by giving GTN, you'll make things significantly worse okay. for the patient. Oh. Yeah. Okay. All right, and what about in the NSTEMI and unstable? Yeah. What would you expect to see in the, yeah. on the ECG there? So, okay, so with the NSTEMI and unstable, you may not see anything. Okay. Or you may see some things like T-wave inversions okay. or subtle changes. Okay. Can, you get, can you get ST depressions? You can. Yeah. You can get ST depressions, okay. T-wave inversions, or you might just see a normal ECG. Okay. okay. Yeah. So from out of those... Sorry, you go. Sorry. And the way to differentiate um, those two is the troponin. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's what I was getting to. Yeah. So... The first test you do, the ECG, potentially the only thing you will see different is the ST elevation with the mm -hmm. STEMI, mm -hmm. and then the other two may be still clumped in together. You don't know which is which. Exactly. All right. And so now you go to um, blood markers, which is enzymes that the heart muscle could release if it's damaged yeah. or dying. Um, so what do you expect to see there? Would that, if you see an increase in markers, would that separate between STEMI and non-STEMI? So, a STEMI and non-STEMI will have an elevation in troponin. Okay. Yep. So, um, they're both types of infarct. Yeah. So, with both of them, you'll see an elevation in troponin. Right. And so, troponin is, a, is involved in muscular contraction. And so, troponin is required for the actinomycin within these filaments that come together, form a contraction. But if it's dying off, then troponin will be released into the bloodstream. And, and it shouldn't be released into the bloodstream normally with a health, healthy musculature. Um, what if somebody... So, obviously, you can have something called rhabdomyolysis mm. in which the muscle tissue is damaged due to varying reasons. Crush injuries. Uh, too much gym. That's what you're trying to get at. <laughs> it's trying to get to that point. Well, okay, so the question I'm asking, and it may be a ridiculous question, but what if somebody came in They've just been, they're not used to exercise, but for some reason they did their very first personal training session and the trainer was Michael. smashed them and they've got horrible pain. <laughs> Would their troponin levels, as far as you're aware, be up and may give a false positive in this case? They may come in with chest pain because they've overexerted and then the troponin levels, could they be up because of overexercise or is it usually quite specific to heart damage? Um, look, to be honest, from memory, mm -hmm. I think troponin I is what, what's most commonly tested. Gotcha. Okay. From memory, it's quite cardio-specific, okay. um, but I would have to double-check that. No, that's and but you can get false elevations in it. Yeah. That's not related to a myocardial infarction. Um, so it can be caused by a bunch of different things. Even Kidney yeah. failure, right? Yeah. Because it's not clear in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Aortic dissections. Wow. Mm. So a bunch of different different things can cause troponin elevation as well. Okay. And there's also creatine kinase in there as well, right? Or do you just do troponin? Now? Yeah, it's troponin. Okay. Oh, right. okay. Yeah. And so you said that the troponin will help delineate between the, the non... So you said both STEMI and non-STEMI are infarcts. So tissue death, therefore release a troponin, that's going to be up. Mm. Yeah. So they've both got it. And then the ST elevation is what delineates between non-STEMI and, mm. and STEMI. But to delineate between the NSTEMI and the unstable angina, mm -hmm. unstable angina um, is going to be this transient ischemic event which shouldn't result in tissue death. If it does, it, it, that, it's now a heart attack, right? Exactly. Yeah. Then it's non-STEMI. 
Yeah. Gotcha. Good. So does that mean that angina then is just a, is simply a um, a clinical syndrome? Is there a time classification that you guys use for angina? Is it is it if it lasts twenty minutes or less, it's angina, and if it goes over twenty minutes, you're having a heart attack, or is it as soon as these markers come up and mm. you know it, it, is it yeah. sort of there's leeway? Obviously, it depends on how much the vessels occluded and so forth. Yeah, I mean, if the markers up, then it's you're really suspicious of uh, non-STEMI or infarct. So um, one of the things that actually happens is. Um, there are different guidelines for different hospitals. But what you'll do when a patient comes in is if they're at high risk, particularly if they're at high risk, you'll keep them and repeat the troponin in six hours. Okay. So what, yeah. when does it start to go up? So if you had someone just having a heart attack right now this second, took their blood, chances are their mm. the troponin's not even raised yet, right? Well, that's the thing. It can take several hours for the troponin to... Wow. You, you, and what, what kind of peak are you looking at? Like four hours, six hours? Um, well, we do it in six hours. Okay. Um, some centres do it in three hours. So different guidelines right. that they um, look at. So what what we do in a high-risk patient is that if you're suspicious that they're still at risk for a heart attack, despite a negative troponin, normal ECG, all those things are negative, mm. um, you would send them to... A unit, so different hospitals have different units and different places that they do it, and you keep them for whatever the guideline of that hospital says, be it three hours, be it six hours, repeat the troponin in that time. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and then. So in the meantime, whether so, would you then, if it's unstable angina, non and STEMI, STEMI, mm-hmm. you, I think you said, do you give them all aspirin? Or you don't give them all aspirin. Yeah. So some of the, a lot of the literature says that unless there's a contraindication, mm-hmm. just to give them aspirin because mm. it's generally quite harmless. The things you have to think about with giving someone aspirin is whether they had a bleeding risk. Mm-hmm. So has this person had a previous hemorrhagic stroke? Right. Have they had an upper GI bleed. Yeah. Because yeah. um, all of these things can be catastrophic. Or maybe previous surgery, like recent surgery, maybe. Um. Yeah, sometimes. Um, but even still, aspirin's okay. fairly comprehensively used, actually. And I think so, I read... Sorry, you go. Sorry. Oh, as I said, I, I read something just recently, and it said that out of all of them, out of all the drugs that are given, or the, that aspirin seems to have the best on mortality, reduction in mortality. It, yeah, it has a lot of um, evidence to support it, but it's still underutilised, actually. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Clinically. Clinically underutilised, yeah. That's, that's what some of the anecdotal wow. evidence says. Okay. So, still, w- should we say that aspirin um, is part of the COX pathway, blocks the COX-dependent production of the clotting cascade, and therefore you block COX, you block this clotting cascade, and you limit clotting. Mm-hmm. And so this well, lasts the, it, the the stickiness of the the platelets, right? So That's they right. produce um, thromboxin. That's mm-hmm. at least one on top of my head. Um, and they start to accumulate together. Yes. And if they do that, then I guess your chance of forming a thrombus is increased. Yeah. And I think and the so platelet half-life's about 12-odd days-ish. And so that's one of the reasons why, if, if you do take aspirin daily, that if you've got some surgery lined up, some elective surgery, they'll tell you to stop aspirin, you know, a couple of weeks before the, the op. Because, again, like you said, you want to limit bleeding occurring. And different types of surgeons or uh, surgical services have different... Um, requirements for aspirin okay. actually so um, some 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 will even operate with aspirin depending ah. on the type of surgery oh, okay. yeah wow. all right so at this point in time the th- the th- all three get aspirin what's another kind of mainstay treatment like what else mm. could you use like um, nitrates so, so you'll get nitrates so yeah there, there are there are a whole host of interventions that can happen depending on the clinical state of the patient yeah, yeah. so you know the Literature says uniformly you can give someone aspirin. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of support and evidence behind it, and it's unlikely to do harm unless there's a contraindication yeah. to yeah. giving it. So some of the other things that are used is morphine. Morphine is for the pain. Yeah. Okay. Um, and is there anything in replace of morphine? Because sometimes in my in some of my classes I'll say morphine, but I've got paramedics in my class. Yep. And they seem to disagree with morphine. They seem to prefer fentanyl. Yeah. I mean, they're both opioids. Yeah. 
There's um, so that there's a little bit of a cost difference between them. Okay. Um, but also, some literature says that unless they have severe pain, to avoid morphine, okay, because it's associated with worse outcomes. Oh, okay. Myocardial infarction. Do it also drop drop your blood pressure? It can, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the benefits of that is. You know, if you relieve the person's pain, their sympathetic drive drops. Right. Mm. Therefore, you can reduce the myocardial demand. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good. Point. Um, so that's one of the benefits from it, and obviously the patient's pain-free. But uh, some literature suggests that it does have poorer outcomes. Right. Wow. Cardiovascular outcomes, or just general? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. And. Um, yep. Yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, so. GTN or nitrates, um, you avoid giving it in right-sided heart. Okay. Um, insults like we talked about, but otherwise you can give it. Okay. Um, beta blockers, which can improve arrhythmogenic outcomes. So one of the catastrophic things that happens with myocardial infarction is that it disrupts the conduction system of the right. heart mm. and people can go into fatal dysrhythmias right. yeah. and that's actually one of the you know one of the things that causes death um, post MI exactly if someone right. comes with the cardiac arrest and this is in the acute still acute mm. okay. so someone might come in with a cardiac arrest um, or a dysrhythmia that's making them unstable hemodynamically okay. so that's one of the things that can happen and so when you say unstable hemodynamically you're saying that the rhythm is in a, is um Occurring in such a way that it increases the likelihood of a clot forming because blood blood oh. likes being sticky and if it's not f- moving around enough or sufficiently, yeah, increases likelihood for clots forming. Well, that could be a consequence of it. Okay. Um, but if they've had so someone has a myocardial infarction and there's tissue death, mm-hmm. and if that tissue death affects their conduction system in a significant way, yeah, they might be coming in with different kinds of heart block, for example. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Um, Complete cardiac arrest, yeah. um, VT, VF. So um, that that's actually what can kill you very wow. quickly. So if yeah. so, someone's come in. Uh, part of the tissue, mm-hmm. part of the, the myocardial tissue has died off. Um, let's just say it may be part of the Purkinje system or mm-hmm. bundle branches or whatever it may be. How then do you? You know, so that when they leave the hospital, how how do you then make sure that they have norm, a normal conduction system for when they leave? Mm. I mean, what 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 do you do if the tissue's gone? Is it just gone? Is there any degree of recuperation or regeneration? So, yeah, so that's where the cardiologists come in in the long term. Gotcha. And I think they can use things like pacemakers. Or, yeah, depending on the block. And yeah, stuff. or pharmacologically control dysrhythmias as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's a decision that they make down the track. Cool. Um, so that's one. Um, so beta blocker. One of the really critical things in the unstable patient is actually sorting out the anatomic problem for the reason they had a heart attack. Gotcha. So in a big center like uh, Gold Coast or the Royal or any of the major hospitals, they can quickly go up to the cardiac catheterization lab and get percutaneous coronary intervention. Yeah. So they can do an angioplasty and open up the vessel, okay. or they can stent it, yeah. or they can do a whole host of different interventions Bypass. to restore blood flow. Yeah. Bypass is another one, um, but that's in patients who are not amenable to cardiac catheterization. Okay. Okay. So that's something the cardiothoracic surgeons will do, usually with a bit of planning. Yeah. Um, they'll actually graft vessels into the yeah. heart to bypass the problematic area. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's a big operation too, isn't it? It's not insignificant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got to open the chest right open. So you got to cut a, a, an incision straight down the sternum, retract it apart, and then stop the heart maybe, and then do some plumbing, and then start the heart again, and then it's, a, it's pretty... It's amazing stuff. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, fixing the anatomic abnormality, um, heparin or um, other drugs to prevent or um, 
even lies, the clocks okay. that are already there. So um, let so me... Sorry, you go. Yep. No, I, I just wanted to say something quick with heparin there. So we've gone past just the possibility of the aggregation of the platelets into the potentially of a clot stabilising. So that's where heparin comes in. You don't want the clot to be um, further cemented to make it this established clot. But if you go to STEMI, my understanding is you really block the whole vessel off with a, a full clot and it's fairly well, much more established. And so now you want to bust it up. And that's through some of the TPAs, right? So Yeah, so lysis is only considered really in remote centres where there's no, there's no access to a catheterisation. Right, okay. Oh, okay. So say you're out in, I don't know, somewhere where... Whoop, whoop. You're, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're the only doctor around. There's no catheterisation lab or anything. Okay. Then you'd call for some help and advice. Yep. And a senior person, like a cardiologist, will tell you to potentially lice them, depending on the person's clinical state. Okay. Um, so you wouldn't use it in Gold Coast? No. They, they generally go up to the authorization. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Because with that, I read that TPA can only really work, or the clot busters can only work um, you know, after maybe four, six hours. And so if you're waiting around for, say, the results of your blood enzymes, you might have missed that window, and so the clot buster mightn't be as effective anymore. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure about the timeline yeah. of the clot busters, just because we just don't use them that much. Yeah, sure enough. Yeah, um, yeah if, if you have someone who's unstable, they'll just go up to the cath lab. Um, oxygen is another intervention. Yeah, that's an that, interesting one. Yeah, that's, that is an interesting one, because... It used to be routinely mm. used until some evidence came out that said that it might have some harm. But I think the general consensus at the moment is that it neither does harm or good. Okay. Um, and it's only been recent that they said it was exactly. harm. Like this a reperfusion oxidative injury exactly. or something. That, that's the theory behind it. Now, is it... Because I, I was looking into that and, and there seemed to be a, a couple of proposed mechanisms there and one of which was increased free radicals oxidative species coming in damaging the cells already existing cells because you're giving them 100% oxygen Um, is is that as far as you're aware is that the mechanism behind it obviously as far as I'm aware yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, so will you routinely just put them on oxygen now or is it a a certain saturation Um, so there are a couple of different numbers that guidelines have thrown around um, some say if they're below 93%, some say if they're below 90%. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so you look at their sats and see how low exactly, they are. Exactly, right. exactly. I mean, if they're becoming hypoxic for some reason, then you'd want to give them oxygen. But if they're saturating okay, just leave it alone. And should they be? Should they be normoxic? Should they be have normal oxygen sats? Mm. Well, it depends. If they're having an MI? Yeah, it depends. Okay. If they're significantly compromised hemodynamically. Yeah. Okay. Not, I mean, a lot of variables, I guess. Yeah. So you can, you know, there's a whole spectrum of people that you'll get. For example, you'll have someone like you or me just sitting around saying, I've got a little niggle in my chest. Mm-hmm. Or you might get someone who's completely ashen, has fainted, you know, barely able to speak, confused. Or you might have someone in cardiac arrest. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So variable. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Um, Thank you. This is great. One last... I guess we we should probably round up because you need to actually get to work. (laughs) (laughs) But let me ask you just one last question. So let's say the person has survived the MI. Yeah. When do they go home? Do they get admitted Mm -hmm. or they just monitored for a bit and then sent home? So if they've had an MI, Mm -hmm. if they've had a... generally have a non-STEMI or a STEMI, cardiology will take them. Yeah. They'll maybe get catheterization. Okay. Or if it's more complicated, they might need a cabbage or a right. bypass graft, which will take a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, then they'll need cardiac rehab as well. Okay. So that's a part of actually getting them back. In the now, less, uh, sorry yeah. to interrupt with that. Is it now commonplace? Because I remember they used to say, you know, you've had an MI, you're bed bound now for yeah. X amount of time. Do they try and get you up as fast as possible now? I think um, I'm not exactly familiar with the rehabilitation mm. protocols of what they use, um, but 
Yeah, so... We I mean, obviously you don't want them going to the gym and doing a whole bunch of deadlifts, but obviously... Yeah. Back to his gym, too. Yeah, I'll always bring it back to him. But, it, but I did um, read that, that you, you do want to give them a stress test, like a sub-maximal exactly. stress test, like so, within a week after the heart attack, right? To yeah, see... Well, that, that might what, be something they yeah. do. With the stress test, um, if you have a low-risk patient um, that you've not admitted to cardio or yeah, yeah. kept in the medical unit, yeah. um, they'll get a stress test as an inpatient or outpatient even, plus or minus a myocardial perfusion scan, okay. which is a type of a imaging test to see right. if there's an ischemic events. So these might be the people that you suspect have you know, normal troponins, normal ECG. You may have unstable angina or yeah. stable angina. And it's interesting because some of these patients have significant enough uh, blockages to get cardiologists excited to um, intervene straight away. Okay. Yeah. So you, your own self, anecdotally, have you seen patients, let's say they've had an event, not too severe, Mm -hmm. but they've been catheterized. Have you seen them post that, that, you know, their pipes have been cleared out a bit? That they're just full of energy, or is it not that quick? Well, unfortunately, we rarely get to see okay. patients after we see them in the ED that night. Um, you know, which is the nature of working in the ED. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so your job is sometimes, you know, often to diagnose things, get help from the different specialties, start treatment, and hand over care to them. Yeah. So. To be honest, I haven't actually seen anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Because you'd think, like, you know, if you're being occluded for, let's say, years, 70%, and then all of a sudden it's just reopened, your heart must be like, what's happening? I I think some people do. I've heard anecdotally that they feel, you know, it's a scary event for anyone. Sure. And I guess the take home point here is um, anyone who's, you know, exhibiting these kind of chest pain, they should really get straight to the hospital, right? Exactly. Chest pain is, I mean, it's, it, it can end up being a critical yeah. event. Mm. Um, there are about, um, I was reading a bit of literature the other day, um, it was the Heart Foundation in Australia, and they were saying there was about around 500,000 presentations in 2012 for chest pain in Australia. Mm. Out of those, uh, about 68,000 was actual ACS Okay. So that's a bit less than one in ten. Mm-hmm. And so the rest are will be presenting with some other issue, respiratory, GIT, yep. whatever else it may be. Yeah, exactly. And I think some of the American literature says about 15 to 30% of chest pains, up to 30%, I don't think it would be that much. Mm. could be ACS. Wow. So not all chest pains are ACS, but considering the catastrophic consequences it can have. Worth getting checked yeah. out. Exactly. And for the best of the heart health, you're basically trying to get rid of the risk factors. So you, mm. you'd recommend don't smoke. Yep. Check your diet. Yep. Um, exercise. exercise yep. Keep your blood pressure under control. Yep. Any other um, final choose, things? Choose your family members a bit better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. History. Don't yeah, I mean, smoking is huge. Uh, central obesity particularly. Okay. But weight in general yeah. is a big one. Um, exercise, obviously, and eating vegetables and having the right type of diet is right. very, very important. So it's, it's really, really controllable risk factors. Right. Yeah. They're the big ones. Yeah. All right. That Thank was you. a really great episode. That was brilliant. Thanks, Dinesh. Oh, thanks We're going to get you on again. We, we, need this, uh, we need this insight. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Dr. Matt and Dr. Mark's Medical Podcast. You can go on YouTube, uh, YouTube and watch some of our YouTube videos. You can go on iTunes. You can rate us. Please, if you like listening to us, give us five stars. If you don't like us, just don't give us... Don't even... Comment. Don't even go on there. Don't comment. Don't give one star. One star is horrible. Five stars only, everyone. Um, <laughs> apart from that, you can contact us, gubiosciences at gmail.com. And apart from that, we'll see you all soon. All right. Bye. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.